Hello and welcome to another episode of Six Before Breakfast, the podcast of the ICD for those who make a living by being creative and talented or who manage and coach those who do. You can visit us online at our LinkedIn and Facebook channels. Join our community of interest to see and hear more from like-minded people and meet some friends you do not know yet. My name is Andrew Armour, and today I'm talking to someone who has had the full creative journey. And no, this is not just a metaphor. Svetlana Vasileva has built her career around the world, across work and and across genres. Uh, To paraphrase Robert Frost, Svet has taken her own creative road, one that is less travelled. Something inside took her from a young rock musician in Bulgaria to teaching at the biggest music school uh, in Europe. From touring with ambient and dance legend Moby and playing at the Sydney Opera House to running music programmes with young, creative people on the east coast of New Zealand. And in between all of that, the small matters of completing a master's degree in music performance. So, yes, she knows the theory and the practice. And she's been a mother in a creative industry which is notoriously tough for women. And moving countries, exploring folk heavy metal and helping hundreds of young people to be, become better musicians and more confident and smarter performers. And today, I am speaking her from across the ether as she beams into us from the beautiful Art Deco city that is Napier in New Zealand. So, welcome Svet. Good morning. Kia ora and dobro utro. <laughs> Hi, Andrew. How are you? <laughs> I'm excellent. How are you and how is New Zealand this evening? Yeah, in New Zealand is um, perfectly fine. It's kind of end of autumn here, but quite um, mild, eighteen degrees and sunny. So not complaining. Wow, and that's winter as well. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. Thank you so much for joining us, Svet. Um, I've known you for a number of years, and I've seen you in action in performance workshops, and you're something to behold. Um, I always remember seeing you work with young bands, and there's an there's an amazing sensitivity, which is a mixture of toughness but also support and i think it's an absolute art of people like you who are that sort of high level professional musician how you get that balance right which i i've always found fascinating but first of all um you have had a massive journey uh, both metaphorically and physically um it is some creative career and journey you've had and i want to start at the beginning if we can svet um you've played with the likes of moby and right said fred and that's what you know, uh, I've always thought of, and countless heavy metal things. I know you're a massive heavy metal player as well. Um, and I've always found it fascinating as to how you got started. I know some musicians were prodigies when they're young, like playing piano at the age of three and things, and some people start later. So I should start, were you always musical? Were you a precocious musical child? Were you in musicals at school? Uh, or was this something that you developed later in life to to, uh, your interest in music and performing um well it kind of I think I was always creative um I wrote poems I had some piano lessons I was doing theater I did puppet theater I was into art quite a lot um did all sorts of things um and every time I went to summer camp or anything like that, I would take part in any activities that were happening and I would make a fool out of myself on stage and, you know, all that kind of thing. So I think I was always enjoying that side of things. Um, so it probably wasn't a surprise. 
maybe what was a surprise was that actually music was probably not the thing that I found most naturally coming to me. Um, I, I found writing and poems and all that quite easy, but actually practicing music or like, I don't have perfect pitch or anything like that. So, you know, sort of always had to work for work on that. But yeah, I started playing guitar, I think at about 11 years old, uh, kind of self-taught a bit, looking at books and then started having lessons and kind of got really quite into it when I was a teenager and sort of classic rock story, really. I was in a band that didn't have a bass player and I was a vocalist who played rhythm guitar. So I got delegated on bass duties and uh, basically that's what happened. And by the way, I don't, I don't really think I'm specifically like, I mean, I do like metal, but I don't, I've never really played in big metal bands just to kind of say that, but you know, I kind of, I pretty much play everything to be honest, but yeah, in our house, my husband's the real big metal head. I'm, I'm just kind of more like an overall person. <laughs> What's that? Uh, was there a moment when, when I've spoken to sports people, there's that, there's that moment when they realise it's not just a hobby that they play at the weekend, that it's actually, this could be something they do as a career. Uh, with musicians, was it a similar thing for you? Was there a moment when you realised this is not just a hobby that you like, that you love music? Everyone, I've always thought everyone, I don't know anyone who doesn't love music. So... Was there a moment when you realised that it's beyond being a love of music, but to being a, a professional musician? Was there a particular moment when you realised you could make that, that shift and change? Um, well, I think, first of all, um, I was still in Bulgaria when I, I was working in my first band and we were doing basically like residences in hotels. Um, and, yeah, I didn't go to university immediately when I graduated because we had one music uh, conservatoire and and at that point I was trying to play classical guitar and that's a very difficult instrument that I wasn't that great at and they would accept one person from the whole country that's the positions they had um, and I sort of didn't even try to apply because I was like that that's not gonna be me I knew I wasn't at that level so I just I played with the band and I was like okay so this is great you know making good money and um, it it was like, oh, awesome, I can, I can make a living out of that. And then we, um, I moved to England with my then husband and I had a one-year-old baby and it was quite a mad move because, you know, like we didn't really <laughs> have anything. We just kind of upped and moved. And um, a few couple of years in the UK, I had a job working as a sort of like secretary, PA, learned to type and all that kind of stuff. Um, and... I was getting really bored at that job. And then I saw an advert for um, a degree which just started. And it was kind of the predecessor of BIM where we met. Um, and it was the first time that they were doing, and actually lied, it wasn't a full degree. It was a two-year certificate in higher education, which was funded. Because, um, you know, I was a poor secretary with a one-year-old child. You know, I couldn't, well, at that point, maybe three. Um, <laughs> I couldn't pay lots of money for a private course. And... And I was like, that's it. I've had enough of, of, of that job. You know, I just actually want to try music again. And just kind of getting into college, I think at that point I was already committed to it. And it wasn't like I'll make a living out of it or I'll, I'll be successful with that. But it was like, I have to do this because the other thing was not, not giving me any joy. I felt like I got all I could do from that. You know, I learned how to, um, I don't know, write a nice letter and type quite quickly. And, you know, these are skills that are very useful still, but... I was like, I don't know, that's not me. That's really interesting. Um, 
so you started getting into studying music at a higher level, but at that, I mean, from there to the Sydney Opera House, that that would never have that that was never in your mind that you would be a professional touring musician, was it? It, it, it seems so far away. Yeah, from starting well, music to playing at that level. Definitely, it's like you know, yeah. Don't don't have big dreams, guys. <laughs> Then you achieve it. Maybe. No, I don't know. No, I don't. I, I mean, I think what happened was because I had a child quite young and I had to always have that as, you know, and I, I didn't think that I'll be able to sort of start rehearsing in basements and doing gigs for no money. Like I was, I was learning music, but I thought I'll just be doing music, but it will be on some, some sort of professional, you know, function sort of levels or maybe doing some sessions, but I wasn't thinking I'll be going around the world um, and definitely wasn't thinking that I will be uh, getting offers to, to, to work with original bands and sort of write my own music. Um, but it kind of just went that way, um, mainly because I was just taking on a lot of different work and meeting people and people were putting me forward for, for other work and, and that's how it came about. But I didn't have... And I have to tell you that I actually really even have plans and I've done a lot of things in my life, as you said, which for some people are probably like uprooting from one place and uprooting to another place and all that. Um, I kind of do the minimal planning that I have to do for those things. And at times it happens to just work and I don't know what it is, but, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I have to explore that because obviously I was on a very different side of music and entertainment. I was a marketing and licensing guy. So everything had to be organized. And one of the things that I find fascinating about uh, meeting people like you is that it's exactly what you just said. It's kind of, there's, there's that beautiful thing in art about um, chaos and order and structure and randomness. Is, is mm -hmm. it that your career then, it, it, it didn't, you knew what you wanted to do, but you kind of went with the flow almost. I don't mean the flow in the psychological sense. I mean, as in the opportunities that came along. What was interesting, I heard you say there, is you did a lot of stuff, which I've heard, I've heard Brian Eno talk yeah. about this. You, you don't, you, you, you can't be creative not doing things. You have to just, what, did you, did you just accept whenever, whenever, when somebody said, would you come to this session, you'd always say yes. Yeah, a lot of that. And I have to say something that, um, you know, I think, probably worked in my favor the fact that I was always kind of a little mindful of you know when I realized that there weren't that many women in in the business of like you know women instrumentalists which I knew there wasn't that many but when I went to my degree it was just me and one drummer across you know the, the, the next year there was no girls on the degree so, you know it was like very very clearly obvious that there wasn't that many uh, female musicians and I sort of always had that think about people calling me just because I look different and I'm a bit of a different thing and I bring a different thing to them. And that was always, I mean, it's not really even a problem per se, I think, because, you know, if people want that, they want that they're kind of looking for a specific, you know, sometimes it, it's not even the look. Sometimes it could be they're looking for, um, um, I don't know, there was an example, I was in a band where it was a female vocalist. She just wanted to have another female to tour with. So that was kind of her preference was to have a female uh, bass player because she had all the other musicians. But I was, I would always kind of think about that and not that I would say no to that. You know, I'd go to auditions if there was, say, female um, auditions. But I also always just accepted any gigs. So it would be sort of like cover gigs and people would call me. And I felt like, oh, that's great because I'm doing this dive pub, pub 
um, for hardly any money. They asked me because they needed the debt player and they knew I could do the same. <laughs> so I kind of was proving to myself that I wasn't an imposter and I wasn't just kind of like a trend or anything like that. Um, you know, you said, you said something very interesting there, which we often talk about in coaching, the word imposter. Um, uh-huh. Let's explore that because that is a, such an interesting, because obviously I know technically, I've seen you play, I know technically you've got to have the chops, you've got to have the technical chop, musical chops. But that, that imposter thing, it, it comes up, it, uh, people that I know in advertising, people that I know in television, people that I know in marketing, they feel that they... Even if they're getting the good jobs and their well-paid career, there's always a doubt in their mind that they're not they're not quite good enough. I just wondered when you started getting into those proper serious music things, was is, was that sense of doubt in you as well? That am I good enough to be on stage at these massive gigs and things? Yeah, um, I part of me thinks that it doesn't. It never really goes away, Andrew, because there are always people that are going to be better than you. I think, I, you know. And but I just kind of, I think I don't feel. I guess I don't mean that I feel like I'm an imposter for everything, but I think I just kind of learned to be confident with what I am as a musician, what I can do, what I can't do as well. And actually, as it's been hardest for me to accept that as someone who teaches bass to get to a point where I can go, actually, guys, I don't think that I can really teach you that that sort of thumb slap thing because I I can't do that and I've tried it and it hurts and I don't like it. So I'm not going to, but, you know, it it took me time to kind of be be honest about it, to say, um, yes, it is very impressive, but I'll leave it to Victor Wooten and all the people that are doing it and I'll just step right out of it. Um, And it's not like I, I don't feel as much as an imposter so much. It's more like I'm where I am. Um, not a virtuoso, but I've got certain things that I think are, are really good. Um, and that's what I can offer to the table. And I can't compete with sort of everybody. But at first, when you're a young musician, I don't know if anybody doesn't do that. I think you always kind of think, oh, the, that person is better than me. And that person's better than me. And that person's better than me. And I think, as I say, it was the other thing that I did realize very quickly that there wasn't that many female musicians. So I kind of, you know, I wasn't sure if they actually all, you know, thought that I was a good musician as well as maybe the other things, or if it was just like, oh, we kind of have like, we, you know, we're going with a brief and we're looking for a girl. And hey, Sveti's is a girl. She can do that. Um, <laughs> On yeah. that confidence thing, because this is a great topic for coaches and people who manage creative people. Um, it, we often talk about, you know, knowing your strengths and the, it leads to the more philosophical thing about knowing knowing yourself, knowing who you are. Um, so, so when you, does that mean that when you go for, uh, sessions, are you very clear about what your, your focus is? Like, this is my area of expertise, even though you're a general, I know you're a, you, you're a good, strong musician, but are you very, say, this is who I am. This is what I do. It does help. I mean, if somebody calls me and asks to do thumb slapping thing, I'll just tell them to the... (laughs) (laughs) it's not going to be a pleasant experience i can't do it even if it's like most amazing tour uh but yeah i mean it does help to be honest and to know what you can do and the kind of thing that you're into i mean saying that i I would like to join weird things sometimes and do stuff that's maybe challenging yeah i'll just do the easiest kind of thing that's that that's not what i mean but they there are some you know things to know 
<laughs> what a corny joke. Um, but, you know, the, like those kind of things, you, you can't do everything. I had a double bass for ages at my house and I sort of tried to learn some of that. I did it as a second instrument, never had time to practice it properly, but I did two recordings and one gig on it and I really enjoyed it and they went well. But honestly, I can only play it like beginner style, just the low notes. I could not go anywhere higher up the neck because I have no idea what happens there. <laughs> but I still went into the gig because it was all right. I could do briefs. It's like, fine, that's okay. Um, yeah, the confidence is, is, yeah, that's it. You have to know that you are good with those things and you can do something really well and um, you can do a good gig or a good recording, whatever it is. Uh, again, I've never been a, I've never been a musician, so I don't know. I've never been a performer on stage. Um, but there's an interesting aspect here about the technical ability versus the other sort of personal attributes, which is what is my interest. Um, so when, when you get when you get to work with some of those bigger acts, bigger bigger studios, um, as well as being technically good, you've got to play play properly. Um, what else are they looking for, those people? When they bring you in, like a music director or a band manager, what else are they looking for from you as a person, Svet, Svet the person, as well as being a good musician? What else are they looking for you to be, do you think? Probably first and foremost, the really obvious thing, someone who is responsible to not just be drunk all the time, <laughs> can get up and get on a plane on time, can perform regularly, can learn the set, be a nice person generally. Um, you'd hear that from a lot of musicians. One of the first things that people would say, you know, when you get auditions, people look for someone that they can get on with. When you go for three months, you are stuck with the same group of people who are not your family and they're not necessarily your friends. They might become your friends, but it's a very intense relationship, especially if you're a new person to that group. Suddenly you're in a group that you're with all the time. And um, they have to pick wisely because if they pick someone who is not the right person, that's, you know, and that's complicated though because they're also looking for a particular musician, aren't they, as well. So I guess sometimes they are... There are some flexibilities around that, but I mean, God, we all know even the bands that started from, um, you know, root styles. Like I was actually watching Peter Jackson's uh, Get Back, started it yesterday, really late after everybody in the world had watched it. And it's so amazing. Just the looks at each other. It's, uh, you know, when you've been in a band and you're like, <laughs> I know that look, they've just, they're so fed up already and they've just spent three days trying to get a set. You know, imagine being on the road for three months. Well, on that point, um, I was at a gig last night, uh, the Pet Shop Boys and their um, world tour. And it's just, I know it's, you've done those as well. And it looks, I could not believe how quick they go from place to place. When you look at the dates, it, they move quick. And I just wondered, I want to, this brings into that more holistic uh, conversation we have about um, not just about being successful and being, uh, and being talented, which is always interesting, but more the human aspect to being a creative. Um, I know sometimes uh, it can be late nights, early mornings, uh, constantly moving, constantly living out of a suitcase, all of that sort of stuff. And just the stresses and strains of being on stage a lot, uh, you know, and the, and there's always, a little, I presume, a little bit of nerves going on stage. In your own um practice if you like as a professional musician how did you cope with that sort of just the, the sheer the sheer the sheer um stresses and 
the grunt of going from place to place for months and months. What did you, how did you cope with that? I mean, there are different levels, you know, it's like sometimes um, it could get quite busy, but maybe you're doing a nice tour. Like I'll give an example, which was when we went to South America with Moby and because the plane connections between the countries there were so terrible, Moby actually paid out of his own pocket for a really nice private jet. Um, so we ended up having a nice plane. We were traveling. Yes, sometimes we do a gig and then travel and do a gig in another country, um, you know, on the next day. So you don't even have a, like a, a night off maybe for two or three nights. Um, but, you know, you, you kind of, if you don't queue up at the airport, you get on the airplane, you get there, you go to a nice hotel or you go to soundcheck, then you get fed. So it's, you know, it's fine when it's like that and you have a bit more space and there would be times when you're on a bus, maybe in Europe, sort of traveling. And then that's harder because you're there with everybody on the same bus. And I do need my own space. So I think the only thing that you could do there would be to just have headphones on and a book and just jump into your bunk, which is a bit like a um, casket, you know. <laughs> <laughs> there is no better word to describe it, but you know, at least you're sort of in your own little space um, and definitely headphones so that you just don't really hear and get involved with anything. Um, I think that's really important, really just to, to always find a little bit of time for yourself because at the beginning I was thinking like, Oh, I have to just do it everyone because we're, we're in it together. And then you just realize actually that's not true. It's, I mean, even when you're at home with your family, you don't do everything together, right? That's just kind of how it works. So, um, yeah, you have to find your own little space. Um, and just on that point, you, you were a young mum. When you were doing your, the, the big rock stuff, you were a young mother at the time. Is that, is that right? Or Well, it kind of, uh, yeah, I mean, I, my first son, I've had two sons with a 23-year uh, difference, so I don't know um, if I would recommend that to anyone because you like literally one is out of the door and then you start the whole process again. <laughs> uh, but this is how it worked out. Um, so my first band that uh, got signed and I was touring with my first son was about eight. And then uh, when um, he was a bit older, when I started doing the big stuff with with Moby but still yeah he was 13 and then I always felt like I've deserted him at home for um quite a long periods of time and then he he sort of had a bit of a troublesome teenage years to be honest so I do kind of carry that guilt that I should have been around a bit more um perhaps rather than go around the world um having fun and um yeah it's it's difficult I think this is quite a big one for for musicians really probably explains why a lot of musicians don't have families or kids and might also explain why there aren't that many um you know female instrumentalists on tour because it's it's still it's tricky isn't it and you do always end up feeling a little bit guilty and a little bit bad because you feel like you should not be doing that it's one thing to leave your kid at home and go to work for a day and come back, but it's a bit different to uh, disappear for two months. Speaking to other creative people, it's often, I mean, when I was in um, advertising and TV things, a lot of late nights, like um, after show things, uh, eating curries at one o'clock in the morning, and then you're up again early and it's not the most healthy. And I, I know that some vocalists are, uh, they have some really careful routines about how to look after them 
because their voice is their instrument. I just wondered from you, did you pick up some good habits about how to take care of your mind and health during those sorts of years? Yes, for me, the things that I, I mean, it's actually not even just a tour thing. For me, the, the one way that I can find time for myself and relax is yoga. Um, and I started it about 20 years ago. And I actually remember to this day, because now I've moved to New Zealand, and the first gig I did with me was in New Zealand. And we arrived because of jet lag. Uh, I think we, there, was, we, there was no rehearsal, so maybe we had like a day or two in the hotel. And when I arrived, obviously after that 24-hour flight all scrunched up i went for a walk and i discovered the yoga place just right next to where the hotel was in auckland and i went there and that introduced me to ashtanga which i don't know if you know what it is but it's a bit of a mental kind of when i say mental sorry i meant a bit of a very 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 intense kind of dynamic yoga uh, that they really like here in new zealand and um it sort of stayed with me i i I still go to an Ashtanga place now in Napier. I'm going there tomorrow morning. And this is my one thing that I can do. And I feel like I have to do once a week um, because at that point, I only think about myself. Even if I'm not doing some kind of terribly difficult physical class and it's not maybe necessarily keeping me in, in you know, like top athlete form. Um, it's the fact that once a week I have an hour or an hour and a half where I really have to think about my breathing whilst I'm trying to balance on one leg because I can't really think about other things or I'll topple over. So <laughs> I found that one a really good, um, healthy habit uh, to keep um, generally, but also on tour it helps. And I have been to yoga places in many countries and in many cities. I'll just go and find out the nearest place and I would just go there and do yoga if I could. Um, the other things that I did was also being a tourist which sometimes could be quite exhausting because I like that stuff as well. So I felt like I have to do it, even if I didn't have time. Like, but I'm in this town and I may never come here again. Probably never been Lebanon. Let's just kind of go and sort of wander around and see what's going on there. Um, and yeah, so it kind of tired me out in a way, but it still meant that I took some walks and, you know, kept, um, I guess, a little bit um, of my own life that wasn't just being consumed entirely by just being on tour. One of the most fascinating uh, topics that crosses creativity and coaching and psychology is, of course, flow state. And when I've spoken to sports people, it's very similar. Um, uh, uh, also designers and computer programmers, this issue of flow state. The question I'm always interested in is, do you think flow state is, is that when you're at your most happy when you're learning new music and you've got the challenge of learning it within a day or so, can, can that stress sometimes be uncomfortable? And you've, you've obviously seen it with other musicians as well. So what are your thoughts on that flow state issue for yourself first? Do you like that, that feeling of being slightly under pressure of learning a new music thing or something like that? Do you like it? Do you enjoy that? I definitely enjoy being under pressure. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I'm what you may call sucker for punishment as well because I keep like thinking and wanting to do different things as well and put myself in situations where, yeah, I, I always give myself more things to do than, than I could do. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like being in that state. And actually, particularly with music, I remember when I was a teenager, when, when I first got into music, I was really happy practicing for six, seven hours a day because then obviously you have the time. And, you know, my parents would sometimes kind of be like, oh, well, I mean, you know, she's not out kind of getting drunk at 16. She's at home playing guitar rather than going to school. But, you know, it's, 
<laughs> it's all right. <laughs> um, so, you know, they kind of, they were like, okay, so you still get good grades. So occasionally they would kind of let me, but I would, I would stay up till one or two. I think there was that one point where I was so focused on getting really good. Um, I uh, would sleep at night from eight to 12 because I read that was the optimum time and I'd get up at 12 and play for six hours before I had to go to school. Um, that didn't last very long, but my parents put up with me because I think they realized that it would just die out if they let me do it for a bit. But I did it for a week or two. <laughs> it's interesting because there is that thing about, you know, early birds and night owls, isn't there? Are, are you, uh, as a creative person, do you find that you like that sort of unusual uh, uh, times in your biorhythms and brain? So often, for example, people say uh, if you're writing – Sometimes it's easier to do writing late at night. If your brain is more of a night owl, would it be the same for you maybe, like early morning or night? Well, I think at night time I'm more into creative stuff, definitely. Um, uh, but if I have to do something that's, um, you know, for example, obviously work in education, if I have to do anything that involves creating any materials, curriculum stuff, or doing any marketing, anything like that, I find that in the morning I'm, I'm more capable of doing that you know, whilst I still can remember what people are saying or what I'm meant to be doing. But when it's things that I I create that come from me, then that would be night time. Let's, let's move on to the working with young people, because obviously um, in this podcast and with the ICD, uh, it, it's not only people who are creative like you, but also people who help other creatives, which is also why it's good to have you. I've seen you with your music director type um, hat on. Um, and... and uh, I think the main thing with that, when you work with young musicians and young uh, uh, performers, um, what do you find yourself working with them mostly on, ignoring the modules and certificates and degrees? And um, what I meant was, is it the technical stuff, like technical musicianship? Do you think that is what you focus on? Is it the attitude, actually their attitude to being a musician? Um, or is it is it the more sort of the, the less obvious stuff like just managing themselves as people and confidence and things like that which are the areas that you find yourself most working and coaching creative musicians on young creative musicians on i generally always try to be positive to encourage them to make decisions and to just to you know not kill their joy in music because you know if you if, if you have too much of a uh critical and focused on technique hat on all the time, I think that can sometimes have the opposite effect, um, you know, and put people off a little bit. Um, but it kind of depends if we're doing, so I'll just give you an example just from last week, actually, because also at the moment I'm doing my PG cert um, in teaching and learning and I'm doing my active research and my topic is feedback. And I, I actually, I want to look at feedback and see if there could be different frameworks for feedback being offered to creative people because, you know, feedback is taken personally generally by anyone, but I think especially when it's original songs or, you know, like some original composition someone came up with or a performance, you know, people really think, well, this is, you know, you're telling me that I am not good enough rather than whatever it is that you um, commented on. But um, in a nutshell, we had a, a gig coming up with the students that are in their first year. So they haven't really had much time and they, they're not very quick at getting the set together and they didn't pick very easy songs. 
and I told them, look, guys, you know, you know that I'm doing that um, study myself and I've been doing different kinds of feedback, like something called critical process review by Liz Lerman, like all those kind of nice, friendly feedback um, feed forward strategies. But because now we're under pressure, we have to get all this stuff done. I'm actually going to be a grumpy music director and I'm just going to be telling you what needs to get fixed now so that we actually get it fixed for next week. So, you know, the feedback is going to be, you know, I'm not going to be horrible, but I'm going to be really to point like you two guitar, you think is, uh, you know, your part's not right. Why did you not just, um, you know, you have to get prepared. So they're like, okay. But actually today I kind of asked them what they thought about it. And they said, actually, that was really helpful because we all got it together and we've never sort of seen you like this, but it was, you know, they, they thought that I wasn't too, too, um, I was focusing on the technical side not really on anything that was kind of like personality wise, but they, I think because they were informed previously, they realized what it was about and they got the technical side ready and they enjoyed it. And I think maybe there is something in being able to explain to students what you're doing when you're doing it, because I've had feedback from students saying, well, you're always so nice and you tell something nice even to people when they completely make a meal out of a song and you still find something good to say because normally that's what I would try and do. Um, so I don't know, maybe there is something in that, me kind of you know, putting on different hats, so to speak, for different workshops and experimenting even after I do my certificate. It's interesting. In my, uh, my own master's in coaching, Svet, my, um, my final research was into what I call the modern maestro, in music, in fact, I, I think I interviewed you as part of that, um, and it's a very interesting thing. You may have seen that film, the famous music film Whiplash, about the jazz, the jazz drummer. Now, I spoke some. <laughs> I don't. I'm sure there is something interesting, and I've seen it with sports coaches as well. Uh, if you are talented, you, you actually. My, my theory was that if you are genuinely talented, you actually want that slight mentoring type um, role from the people who are working with you. And, and I've spoken to young musicians at BIM and they, they said privately, they said in those performance workshops, they actually like it when someone like you lays down the law a bit and says, guys, come on, this is not good enough. I've seen you do it. I know you're, lo- you're a lovely person, but I've seen you do it in those rooms and you basically clap your hands and stop the session and say, what's been going on? what have you been doing and you look you see i know this is true and it's basically they sometimes creative people that there's a need for that is it fair to say that creative people sometimes need a push they need that bit of a a hard word at times you, you hear it with football and rugby and tennis that sometimes the coaches have to have a tough word a tough word with them at times say if you want to be a top performer you've got to really focus on this and, and get really into it and I know you, you do that as well with your music directorship. Do you think do you think musicians sometimes need essentially that hard word to, to bring them up to the, to the edge? Um, I mean, I'd say it, it can work with people. It, it may depend on the person. I know that with me, um, every time when someone's kind of given me some criticism that was quite harsh and I thought it was unfair, that actually really motivated me because, like, I'm going to show you. And I sort of worked out, <laughs> but you know, people are different. So I know, you know, some people may get upset about it. Some, some people might even get depressed about that. Um, so um, that's why I wouldn't normally, I wouldn't do it without, you know, having a word. Um, and um, 
I've been teaching for a really long time. So if I am ever in a situation where I can see that the student is unhappy with something that's been said, I would clear I would clear out the air, you know, I'm, I'm sort of old enough to be able to kind of go and say, look, what's happened? What did you know? You know, talk, tell me what was that upset you about that feedback? And sometimes people wouldn't understand what I was trying to say, but you know, there are also the technical things are like, if someone's out of tune, why are you out of tune, man? Get a tuning pedal. <laughs> you know, there's no need for that. <laughs> You know. it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it, it leads to another, this, this leads naturally to a, a topic which is so common, not only in the creative industries, but in the broader society at the moment, is the rise of things like anxiety and stress. And and I've noticed it in my coaching. I've noticed it, virtually, virtually everyone that I've been coaching privately in the last three years, it's normally the first or second thing they bring up is uh, uh, overwork, stress, anxiety, feeling uncomfortable with themselves. And obviously, and I'm sure you will reflect this as well, with a lot of young people uh, studying, there's also a, 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 a rise in anxiety and stress. Or, if we can have a, uh, a debate about this, a reporting of feeling anxious and stress, of thinking that because they're feeling uncomfortable, because they've got a gig, that therefore they have some issue uh, and on that point, just before I before we go into that, I did I did something interesting, which I when you go walk out on stage at a big gig, are you always is there always a slight nervousness when you're backstage making sure your bass is tuned up all right? Do you get is there butterflies even though you're experienced as you? Is there always a slight butterflies in your stomach when you're about to go out at a big gig? Um, well, yeah, but you know what's funny? The bigger gigs are less stressful than smaller gigs because a particular like big gig, like a festival gig or the gig that you saw yesterday, the Pet Shop Boys, from stage, you don't really see the people. They're too far away. Um, and I, um, <laughs> I'm short-sighted. So, and I never wear glasses on stage. So for me, a stage like crowd, crowd of people like that is just, you know, all a big smudge thing that I don't, I can't see people. So I don't know. Doing a gig in a local pub with 20 people, maybe just sitting there and kind of watching you more nerve wracking in a way. Um, recordings for TV, if there are live TV recordings or radio, that could be quite stressful. TV even more so because they sort of push the camera right in front of your fingers. And it is also like, you know, <laughs> they're in the way as well as kind of you know, giving you anxiety, you see them, but also they're kind of um, putting you off a little bit by moving and, and doing all sorts of things. Um, so, yeah, it kind of is different levels, but actually the really massive gigs, there is an adrenaline rush there as well, and it's exciting and you don't see the people. So those haven't been the worst ones for me generally. That's really interesting. Did, did you find that you were doing, I was fascinated to hear that you had a yoga practice in your own life. Did you find that that, that sort of um, learning to control your breathing, learning to control just calm, did that help when you were backstage, when you're, re you're getting 10-minute calls and five-minute calls, uh, which can be a bit stressful? Did you find that your yoga practice helped you in that regard in terms of staying cool and calm? Yeah, probably, I guess. I, I guess so, yeah. I'm, people tell me that I'm calm. I know that sometimes I get really stressed out as well, but, you know, um, yeah, maybe. Yeah. I, I don't really remember. I remember being very excited because um, there is this thing, isn't it? Like sometimes 
you get that nervous excitement, but it's actually a good thing. Um, and I sort of remember, you know, it's, it's exciting to do most gigs, but there are some like, um, milestone gigs, you know, like the first bir- first big gig that you do, or like the first time when me and my band played Wembley Arena, and that was amazing. And, you know, things like that, that I still sort of can close my eyes and see being there backstage and kind of, you know, getting all really excited about it. Um, but I wouldn't say that's a bad kind of anxiety. It's kind of more like you really kind of want to go for it. Um, I think though it's a little bit different. I have to say I'm, I'm a bass player. So I, I get on there and I play bass. Um, I don't know how I would feel if I had to sing lead. I have done some singing. I've done backing vocals and my original band way back when I used to do one cover song. Um, so we ended up doing that in all the arenas cause we supported Duran Duran. And I don't remember being too petrified about it, but it, it's kind of like a punk song that's very shouty. It's not a nice song that has challenging notes or anything like that. Um, so I think that there is a bit of a difference if, as you say, said earlier, when you were singing, you know, you are your own instrument. And if you're nervous, that affects um, your instrument. Like you literally, you know, reduce the notes that you can hit when you, when you sort of seize up and, you know, um, your larynx kind of all kind of goes all funny. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that's why from my experience, it, quite often is the vocal students who sort of feel that pressure and, and anxiety compared to the rest of us. Because also the other thing is we have our instruments to concentrate and hide behind as well. So it's interesting, that focus is interesting. I, 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 um, I've been studying mindfulness and the, the interesting thing about mindfulness, of course, is it's actually focus. And I say so it's interesting if you're playing bass, presumably you're concentrating so much on the rhythms and your notes in a way that's kind of, I suppose it's a happy space <laughs> because you're focusing on the yeah. instrument. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and what, exactly. So, sorry, stay go on. No, I was going to say exactly that you've got something to focus on and you sort of think about that. And sometimes as, as a teacher in, in the workshops, I would sort of try and find something for a vocalist to focus on as they're singing and sometimes it could be movement. You know, if you ask them to sort of move in a way, cause you say, Oh, no, your singing is great. But if you move, it will help your rhythm. And, and when they try it, they start thinking about how they move or if they look silly when they're doing it and they stop thinking about the vocal technique. So they start singing a lot better because they're not worrying about that, but they worry about something else at that point. <laughs> but, you know, at least, you know, they start learning how to deal with things. I think the, 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 uh, the- Whenever I work with people with anxiety or, or stress, um, it, it's always based on two. Uh, there's only two things. It's either you're replaying something in the past and replaying, or oh, why did I make a mistake? Or why did I stuff that up? Or you're thinking about something that's not happened. You're thinking about something that you know that um, uh, that, that may go wrong, even though you haven't done it yet. And I just wonder with, with musicians, how do you, especially with young creative people, which I think, you know, are the future type stuff. Um, what do you do with, with those to help them, to help them overcome that sense of nerves or anxiety? Are there little techniques that you use perhaps to help them uh, to focus or to, calm, to stay calm? Um, something that we used once when we started the, um, a new intake one year was to go over, um, 
mistakes that we have done. Um, you know, so I was just kind of telling them about like super huge, embarrassing moments that of course I remember really well. Um, and you know, just you survive and then you can always find some really, really embarrassing moments of uh, big bands just doing massive errors and, and handling that, you know, uh, different ways. I think it's funny in, in my, uh, uh, obviously, uh, the, a lot of people that, um, know me know that I, uh, I upset Madonna early in my career by making a, a bad, a bad <laughs> contractual error. Um, and I, and I often use that for the same reasons, Fett, because it's like, I think people need to know that you make mistakes in your career and it, it, they can be at the time they feel that the world is going to open up and you think, how am I going to overcome this? You know, um, I've created an awful problem for my boss and my boss's boss and my boss's 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 boss and the lawyers. And it's all Andrew's fault. And at the time you feel like that's the end of your career. I mean, um, so just out of interest for yourself, have there often been, you know, even when you're playing on the big things where, I mean, how often do you make little mistakes in live big gigs? Are there often little mistakes that are made? Well, yes, little mistakes can happen all the time. Um, so, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, you can hit the wrong note. I mean, to be honest, if you're doing a big gig on a big stage, running around and jumping around like a maniac, then, you know, you probably are not playing particularly, you know, technically precisely it's not a recital uh, where everyone's listening to every note it's, it's kind of a different thing but you know generally if you can um <laughs> if if you um, if you can cover it up that's great i mean i think for me i remember one of the worst ones was wasn't even the mistake i played but it was just there was a show where they changed the set last night and i didn't even notice that the set list had changed that I was given and there was a song that was just Moby with the violins acoustic and I would normally go to the bathroom because we were doing a bar set so you know you kind of get off stage and I would just quickly run to the bathroom during that one song and come back and uh, just as I was <laughs> wandering off stage I heard that the other song starting that I'm supposed to be playing on but I'm already not on stage my bass is on stage and I'm like well it's a bit stupid if I go back up there and you know, look like an idiot that's forgotten. I might as well continue with pretending I'm not supposed to be there because the public don't know what's happening. Um, and it sort of being Moby stuff has a lot of bass in it. So I would play live bass, but there was also synth bass and the person at the front of house could just push up all the other bass that, that was there and kind of cover up for the thing. But the tour manager was kind of running after me like, what happened? You know, are you annoyed at something? What happened? Like, <laughs> no, I just completely missed out that change of set list and I felt so stupid. But then I also felt it was really strange that they thought that I was just really angry all of a sudden, just stormed off because like, I mean, I'm I'm not the main artist. I'm a session man. Imagine if we start having half events and I was like, you don't do that. But um, yeah, that was a good one. So on that, in that, in that particular case, did, how did how does you know uh, uh, the, the, the band manager and, and the artist the, the the star if you like Moby how did they cope? Are the, uh, I mean you have to give personal details, but is it upsetting afterwards? Is it just oh, it's just you just talk about it? Do you just oh, how did that happen? How does it? What's the what's it like when you 
when you talk to those people backstage, if you've done something like that? I mean, he was all right. I'd say he probably didn't even notice it because <laughs> he was probably just busy doing what he was doing. So, uh, he probably noticed at some point, but yeah, I, I mean, after the gig, I just, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize that there was a change of set and he laughed it off. That was okay. I mean, it could have been worse. Maybe, you know, it just, it was something that could have been covered up, but you know, I don't know, embarrassing. But I'm very absent-minded. Probably not that, um, <laughs> not that unusual, if you think about it. I suppose they often say in sport that you have to, you know, people say they miss a goal or miss a penalty, but you have to be on the pitch to do it in the first place. The very fact you are on stage in the first place is, is an incredible achievement, you know, in, in the creative world. So uh, in order to make uh, a mistake, uh, uh, you almost... And, and and you gain from those mistakes. In in um, it is true in learning, of course. In um, when you look at mindset and things like that, uh, you either treat these mistakes as horrible things that means that you cannot be a music executive, or you cannot be a marketing person, or you cannot be a professional musician because you made a mistake, which is an awful. It's an awful thing to think about, even though at the time it does feel awful. But of course, the reality, Svet, of course, and it must be must be i imagine true with musicians is the only way to get better is to is to is to play a lot of stuff and that means making a lot of little mistakes while you learn things that's that's that that's that growth mindset we often talk about isn't it i mean not i'm not recommending to make mistakes all the time but uh, absolutely the, you know the more you make them the more you learn how to cover them up and this is actually you know you were saying earlier about things that i tell my students often this is probably one of the things that i tell them that I could see that you made a mistake mainly because you made a face. If you don't make that face, you'll get away with that because I did not know that that's not what you were not meant to be doing because sometimes people do changes. And, okay, if it's a terrible mistake where we can all hear it, we hear it. But even then, you don't need to make the face. We heard it. That's fine. But a lot of the times people make a terrible face and you go like, okay, so I know you did something wrong. I didn't even notice anything wrong. Why did you do that? Why give it away? So the more you make mistakes, the more you have a poker face, the more the crowd has no idea. <laughs> oh, I do like that. I think we can. I think we can use that in our marketing and media worlds as well. Um, that there's an interesting aspect to that, isn't there? Is it, it, I think we talk, you talked earlier about imposter syndrome and confidence. What I found in um, when I've met very senior executives, they are completely honest about what they don't know. You know, then they will turn around and say, how does this work? And you think, well, surely you must know. You're the marketing director. They don't know everything. They don't know everything. But they have the confidence to ask the question and to say, I, I don't understand this. How does that website work? And you think, well, you're the marketing director. They don't know everything. And I think that's what I found is that when you're early in your career, you almost think that you have to be good at everything. Uh, and then you realize uh, uh, what I found is that as you as you uh, get a a bit more confidence in yourself. You realise that it's okay to say, I don't understand, you know, uh, uh, and to ask for help, to say, can you can you help explain how this works? I don't understand. But that, for me, took a long time to, to realise that you don't have to be good at, you can't be, you can't be good at everything in, in the industry. It's impossible, isn't it? Well, yes, but I also think maybe it's partly like, I can't remember if it was Aristotle, but it was one of them clever Greek guys that uh, one of his students uh, said something like, um, teacher, you know everything and we know so little. 
and he drew two circles. Do you know the story? So like the small circle, he said, this is you. So, you know, what you don't know is around that small circle. And then I'm the big circle. And what I don't know is around, you know, outside this big circle. And I think when you're young, you do feel like you need to know more because you actually, what you know is less. So you think like, well, I can learn all this stuff. And then the more stuff you learn, you, you sort of realize, well, there is more and there's more. And at one point, you just go, I can't know everything. And then you become honest and saying, you know, actually I can start asking questions and that's fine. But yeah, definitely when you're young, I think you kind of feel like, yes, I can learn everything. Although I don't think it's still the same with young people because there is just too much information now out there, I think, for them. So I wonder whether that's the feeling of like, I have to start asking questions comes early. I don't know. I heard a, I heard a phrase the other day, which is we're, we're at uh, information obesity. Uh, there is too much information, uh, and our, uh, our, our, our brains—we we are big apes—and we've, we've had a, a, a more of a growth in information in the last sort of twenty-five years than than our our species has had in the past five hundred thousand years. And so, this enormous um, bombardment of information. And going back, we, we, we've got to wrap up. But going back to that final point about young people. Uh, my personal view of this is that, that there's just too much information being being uh, and that they're trying to scan too much information, which brings an unease because they feel like they're always missing out the fear of missing out. Um, so just when you're working with young students who are feeling anxious about exams or stressed about, they've got a gig or nervous about their careers, what do you tend to sort of, um, uh, uh, advise them if you like to sort of to, to bring them back to a base level what, what do you in terms of anxiety and stress in particular what do you sort of advise them if they want to do it just first of all you know does it make you feel sick with worry i mean you know because sometimes maybe it's is that what you'll do you know if because there are some people that have really bad anxiety so then it's like do you think that you want to be a performer on stage or maybe you're more of a recording artist or you know they why are you putting yourself through it? But if it doesn't make people feel that sick, then just keep practicing. If you're feeling a bit anxious, just get up and do it. And then you will get used to that and you just get more confident at knowing that you can do it. And um, that's, that's pretty much my approach really. But I know that for some people, I have met some students that had really terrible anxiety and, you know, like all shaken. And at that point I'm like, why you know, why are you doing this? Maybe that's not what you should be doing. You should be happy doing music or, I mean, you really should be happy doing what you like doing anyway. And if it makes you feel that bad, then, you know, perhaps you have to, you know, think about it and see if there is maybe a different way that you can continue being creative without making yourself sick. That's a brilliant point. Um, it's in the world of positive psychology, they often talk about, you know, um, 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 we talk about meaning, which is why you why you're doing what you're doing. If you know where you're going and why, that's a really important thing. And so often people don't actually um, uh, think or uh, question why they're doing what they're doing. But the one that really made a difference for me is the achievement aspect in positive psychology. And achievement doesn't mean playing at the Sydney Opera House. So just because you've played, it doesn't mean oh, I can only be successful if I play at one of the biggest venues in the world. It's like, well, well, no, you can actually have little achievements. And I found this an incredibly positive thing for me and for the people I'm coaching is sometimes a good week is just that you've recorded a nice podcast 
that's a good thing to do. It's not, okay, we're not doing a big international television show, but it's a good thing to do. And you reflect on the fact that you're doing small achievements, not huge achievements. And I think for students, I often tell students, I'm not sure that you tried this, is just do a little bit of the essay. You don't have to finish the whole thing. Just do the little bit. Um, just just practice the presentation, the first five minutes of the presentation. You don't have to do all of it. But that's an achievement. And I suppose in music, it's often if you've got six tracks to record or to to play live, you don't have to do. You don't have to get all of them nailed in the first ten minutes. Well, no, but but there are times when you're in the studio and the clock is ticking, and, <laughs> and you have to do them pretty quick. That can happen as well. But um, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, th- that's definitely how I I approach my life with small goals and small achievements. Because yeah, it is too overwhelming, isn't it? it it's, as I said, I I like to do a lot of things, and I often tend to just kind of get myself in situations where I just, you know, say yes to everything and then I have to handle it. And, you know, and that's exactly the right thing. And yeah, when you, when you write an essay, I think the common thing that I tell students for for that kind of stuff is don't worry about the start. Don't start it from the start. Just, you know, do you have any thoughts about it? Just write about the bit that you're thinking about that, you know, the intro will happen at some point and you'll figure it out. Um, and it's actually the same if people are practicing something and, and they're finding a, a you know something difficult about the song. It doesn't have to be from the beginning, and it's probably one of the most common mistakes. And I did that when I was the, you know the teenager who played for six hours. That's probably why I had to play for six hours because if I made a mistake, I made myself go back from the beginning and do the whole thing until I got to that point and I played the same mistake and I do it from the beginning and see now I see why it took me six hours. Um, if <laughs> You know, if I could take my own advice from now, I would just practice that bit that was not right and try and figure out why it wasn't right and get it out of the way and then play the whole thing. There's a great thing. There's a great aspect of uh, there's a a form of uh, um, uh, Buddhist coaching. It's called Marita, Marita therapy. And uh, there's a great line in that, which, again, struck with me, is um, by aiming at less, we can achieve more. And it's such a simple thing. And at first, at first, I thought, well, that's a silly thing to say. Surely you've got to do everything. And then as you got older, you realise there's a lot of depth in that. So, but by reducing our focus, by focusing on what, as you said, that part of the song is wrong. So I'm going to focus on that. And that achieves more in the end. It's that ability to uh, to, to compartmentalise. Now, I'm not saying it's easy. Uh, in my own career, in my people I coach, I know it's not easy. We can often overthink things and overwork things. Um, so I'm not saying it's easy, but it's that ability of reducing things down, if you like, Svet, reducing things down, not overcomplicating things. Does that make a sense to you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and doing things in small bits, That's I think this is genius. And that's something that I... You know, when I was a young musician, I didn't, you know, I wouldn't have thought about it like that. But, yeah. We've got to come to an end, unfortunately. I, I could talk to you for hours because I love your, I love your, uh, your. in a way, it's a quite a crazy and random career. But in other ways, it's like, yeah, but it absolutely makes sense. It's, it absolutely makes sense in a strange way how you, you know, you moved uh, from Bulgaria and then you got into music. And then because of your focus, because of your focus and your your passion, but also I think uh, it is to do with your nature is that you are fairly, I've seen you work and it is a, a mixture of calmness and passion at the same time. 
And I think that's what I'm seeing a lot of, a lot of creative people I work, I've worked with. Are, that combination of being calm at the right time, but also having a bit of having a bit of energy. You need a bit of energy. Um, as someone told me, as someone told me once, you, 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 you know, you, you can't be a shy violet. You can't just sit in the background and and go into your box. You've got to come out and do do things. On that point, before we go, we always end with do three things, Svet. Uh, do three things to help with your creative career and to be positive, to be happy, to be healthy. Um, what would be the three things that you would recommend to anyone who's in in uh, the creative industries as a creative or a manager or a coach? What were the three things that you would recommend people on their creative journey? Experiment is one. Because, you know, I sort of thought it's, it's nice to be true to yourself, but then if you don't consider ideas, then you may not discover things that maybe you like. So I think that that, you know, sometimes when for creative people, you feel like you're doing what comes I don't know, like naturally, you know, the muse kind of hits you in and this is how I am. But if you, if you're sort of open to ideas, I think that that's, it helps, it enhances creativity. I don't think it does the opposite, you know, because you just experiment. If you don't like it, don't take it, but be open. Um, yeah. Have a laugh at yourself, at your band, at your life, at your mates. At, at just have a laugh, but with them as well. You know, don't just laugh at them. But don't take everything too seriously, <laughs> I think. Um, it's probably quite a sure way to get sacked from gigs as well if you're always miserable, serious, and upset about everything. Um, and, yeah, find time for yourself and for the other people that you love, um, especially if you're doing things like tours and long rehearsals and it's it's very easy to get immersed in that situation and those people are with you because they like you you know <laughs> thank you so much Svet. it was so lovely uh, to hear from you uh, i'm very jealous that you have a winter in new zealand that's 18 degrees um, and hopefully I will get a chance next time I'm down in New Zealand. Of course, I get there regularly. Uh, I will come and see you, but you are miles from anywhere. But I think you said you can get a plane. I fly into where you are. It's not that much in the middle of nowhere. You can take a flight. It's fine. Thank you so much, Pet. Have a wonderful week, a wonderful, a wonderful few months. And I'll speak to you again soon. Thank you very much, Pet. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening and hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you make a living by being creative and talented or manage and coach those who do, then join our community of interest to see and hear more from like-minded people and meet some friends you might not yet know. The ICD supports the development of more caring, relevant and effective coaching and mentoring for everyone who works in the creative industries. To stay part of the conversation, you can visit us online at our LinkedIn group and Facebook page or listen to more episodes from the Six Before Breakfast podcast. 